Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media and a contributing columnist on CIO.com, where I write about boardroom strategies for technology leaders. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of CIO.com and my friends in the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and on YouTube, and we welcome any of our viewers who are joining us live to take part in the conversation and send in your own questions for my guest today. We'll be watching for those and doing our best to pass them along. So let me introduce today's guest is Chris Menriquez. He is the Vice President of IT and the CIO for California State University, Dominguez Hills. An experienced technology leader with a deep background in higher education, Chris has been the CIO at CSU Dominguez Hills since 2012. At CSU, he serves as a member of the president's cabinet, providing leadership and governance over all the technology initiatives and the systems and practices across the campus. His team of about 100 technologists are responsible for everything from traditional development and operations to services and managing academic and instructional technologies. One of the 23 campuses that comprise the Cal State system, Dominguez Hills is centrally located in the South Bay and heart of Los Angeles, serving more than 17,000 students. It's also one of the nation's most diverse and ethnically balanced campuses. Before he came to CSUDH, Chris served as the Chief Technology Officer and the Associate VP for IT and Academic Technology at CSU Fullerton, which also happens to be his own alma mater. Welcome. It's great to have you here today, Chris. Excellent to be here with you, uh, Mary Fran, and the rest of the internet. <laughs> the rest of the internet and everybody on LinkedIn and, and all the ships at sea, right? Exactly. Um, well, let us dive in and, well, I actually dive up. I always like to start with that very 30, 40,000 foot view and find out how are things in your industry? We're seeing a lot of stories today about higher ed and how you're dealing with not just return to work for your staff, but return to campus for thousands and thousands of students. Talk about the uh, where things are with you today at CSUDH and what kind of ongoing impact you've been seeing on your employees and on the campus and on all those students. Okay. So thank you for the question and thank you for allowing me the time to spend with you this morning. Uh, in order to answer that, I kind of have to give you a couple framing statements that I'll make, which is at Dominguez Hills, we've been largely principle driven through COVID and COVID for us kind mm -hmm. of did three things. It exposed for us kind of weaknesses where we've had them revealed character where we had it in places where we may not even recognize it before, and then provided opportunities for us to be able to grow. So in a 30,000 sort of foot view, in order to frame that, I will say that in the present context, we've been in largely a hybrid mode uh, over this last year. We came back to physical campus over this term, sitting between nine and 11% of classes actually being held on, on, on premise, Yes. Currently at this point in time, that has been going very well. We have active monitoring. We've got setups where people can have, can have ongoing testing done to mm -hmm. ensure that they don't have COVID or aren't exposed to it. We have reporting mechanisms that are set up, which are very similar to other institutions that currently have been open. Mm -hmm. Now, where we're going from here, 
and I think this is the very interesting part of your question, is what does this look like for terms moving forward? And so as we begin to ratchet up going into your 20s, 40s, 50s, and potentially beyond, reopening is literally, if we thought closing was difficult, closing was 10% of the equation compared to reopening. And reopening in spaces to those larger degrees portends for us a number of challenges. And you mentioned a couple of them. One of them is for the students about the wariness of returning. Will there be distancing? Will I be safe? And we're putting a series of services in place to ensure that that certainly is taken care of. Mm -hmm. Guided most directly by our county, who we're following county guidelines that in higher education, six feet is still the standard. We've all heard that it got collapsed for K through 12 down to three feet, which makes a little more mobility capable, yes. but we're still sitting at six feet. So as we remain at six feet, that on-campus layout, cleaning, and all of that provisions for COVID are, are being addressed, and that will certainly be handled. Mm -hmm. The more interesting questions we move forward is dealing with some issues that arise kind of out of equity. And those would be, as we move forward, we certainly have shown that the institution can be successful revealing its character in a hybrid mode, being away from an on-premise location that we can accomplish both doing the business of the institution, delivering education, and also beginning to make those belongingness links that students have with the institutions they go to for higher education. We've been mm -hmm. successful in our initial forays in those spaces. As we move forward, however, how we continue to put those things in spaces, in digital spaces, and what it means for us so that it's going to be equitable across the line so that if you have people working on premise and they go to meetings and they're at home, how do you ensure that that consistent modality is actually delivered? Yes. So we're looking at that on our campus in different ways of putting in uh, places, AV control systems that allow us that capability. Looking at what does it mean if some half the group is there and half the group is physically not there. Mm -hmm. We're still working through what might be requirements for working from home or working remotely over extended time, because this is the largest educational system in the United States. There's a lot of moving parts in getting this done as part of the system, not just our campus. And so on I our campus, we're working yeah. through. Yes. So many different dimensions. We are actively moving toward larger percentages of people returning to campus, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of pieces moving in that direction. Well, and one of the points you made when we spoke earlier was that a lot of industries and a lot of people look to higher ed as essentially the farm team for the industry tomorrow, like the sort of things that you're doing and what you just mentioned about that ability to um, ensure equity and to democratize the uh, people that are staying remote and people that are there on premise, that presents a whole bunch of new technology challenges, doesn't it? It certainly presents a lot of challenges. And, and as our economy becomes deeper and deeper into digital, essentially yeah. is what we're seeing, both in what allows it to continue to move forward in the way that business is done. That mm -hmm. portends for a lot of activities, both from the student perspective, who I often refer to the students at the institution. This is their AAA experience before they go pro when they get their experience out in the real world with the jobs they take. Yeah. Um, that exposure and that activity, which might be part of internal internships or activities they have with employment on the campus that exposes them to those modalities before they get out there become even more critical. And those skills that they develop as part of that in that partnership component become even more critical as well. Yeah. From your perspective, Chris, and this is something you made note of about how essentially what we're living through right now is an acceleration of the digital economy. 
um, this new method of working that however it pans out, you know, whatever the hybrid uh, uh, percentages will be, that it is going to be omnipresent. And it changes so many things for the way uh, IT leaders strategize about technologies. Uh, tell us about a couple of the just initial steps that you've taken with that, because I know you've you've had digital product projects underway. I've seen um, uh, articles on your website about the digital first initiative uh, post COVID. Mm-hmm. So, uh, kind of sketch out what you're thinking around that digital first initiative and how it differs from a uh, from something like a digital roadmap. Certainly. So. Uh, the Digital First Initiative, we've more or less arrived at this in the emergency response component that all of us, no matter what industry we were in, when yeah. COVID presented itself to be pandemic, right? We were all prepared for an earthquake. We were prepared for a landslide or certain geographically located elements. Mm-hmm. The pandemic, however, really was a couple of factors up that impacted everybody. And when that happened, it wasn't so much the technology that was going to facilitate bridging and allowing things to continue afterwards and during the period. It really became a discussion around where are people now and meeting them at where they were and then mm-hmm. elevating them or having them help that help them be elevated and them elevating you to say, okay, we need to get to this given space. Now yeah. that's been a role IT has played in the digital space for prolonged periods of time. Mm-hmm. What CIOs haven't necessarily have had to do is do it in other spaces. Now, in my particular industry in higher education, that meant in talking about belongingness or equity, part of what we refer to the digital divide to say, okay, in households where people uh, have one room that they're sharing across multi-generational families, how does this work? And it wasn't just me, it was also the three other people they were sharing the space with that were working at three other companies in the South Bay area or doing having jobs that they might have physically had to show up to, how does all this work? So those dialogues became dialogues that were not technology at all, that backed themselves into how technology might become a solution or something that would be provided as a solution in order to address it. And so said a different way, there's four dimensions to this. The first dimension being kind of how do we get the devices in the hand to cover that last mile, right? We've had, we've heard a lot about this. Can mm-hmm. you just get MiFi's and laptops out there? And then, you know, a big part of the problem is solved. And it does solve the last mile issue, but it only opens the door to the rest of the issue if we're talking about equity kind of at large. Mm-hmm. Then now you're exposed to the digital, you've got it. Now, how do we make that actually work for you? And you become literate in that space such that there is no barrier between people working in that space space with a comparable skill set. So right. in looking at that, that, that becomes an important thing. The other three elements that became important were kind of looking at the software capabilities and all of us had a bunch of software in place, but not necessarily addressing things this for this way during the pandemic, right? And so even though we had remotely accessible, you know, labs or we might have had ERPs that extended wherever you wanted to be, it didn't touch people in the same way that might have necessarily needed to do. So in a lot of spaces, you saw digital signatures rise through the roof. People turned that on everywhere and got that moving. You looked at different elements that were around for my for my particular industry, instructional delivery. How could we support the faculty and what they wanted to do in their pedagogy as much as we could over this given period of time? And mm-hmm. so COVID provided an accelerator in that everybody was presenting with the issue. 
how do we get there? What it might have taken three years formerly took eight months to a year. And yeah. so there was a lot of gain in that given direction and a lot learned during the process too. So hats off to the faculty that were adopting this and trying to put in put it in place in order to ensure that their classes remained of quality through and afterwards as we continue to move forward. And then the last thing, I'm sorry, the last segment that came into this was kind of around the business operations. And this is yes. kind of the most exciting component, I think, and gets at some of this. The mm -hmm. way we the way we do what we do at the institution also began to change. So much so that in town halls with our students and others, they began saying, look, when we return from COVID physically, because we're not going to restore back to where we were, we're going to transform through this process. We want to make sure some of these services continue to be made available. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have, have to show up at an office to get X, Y, or Z done. We want to be able to do this all digitally, which and many people in industry areas are saying, well, yeah, that's been the digital transformation of 10 years or so. Well, COVID certainly accelerated that in, in my given space and probably in a, a bunch of others. And such that those areas that have been presented to them, they want to add that to the ongoing menu of items that they have to choose from moving forward. There is no going back. As my provost often says, the mm -hmm. days of 90% on-prem education, and this is the only selection, those days are very likely gone. Yeah. We're now well, in a place where there's choice. You had mentioned too that um, with your uh, your university president who was new in at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, when you just said, you know, we're not going back to normal, we're going to transform and keep uh, that up. That's very much his sentiment from what you've told me about. So uh, tell me a little bit more about that. <laughs> so our president, Thomas Farham, is a phrase that he's well known for if you get to know him. That, that falls under the context. He's not interesting and in, uh, playing follow the leader. He wants to set the curve. And his nuance on that mm -hmm. is don't bring me the eight reasons why you can't. Bring me the two why you can and how we're going to get there. <laughs> and so he's a very dynamic individual to work with, I yes. will tell you. And so a very much forward looking in ways that we can, how do we look at addressing becoming what we should be? And addressing mm -hmm. the, the way, addressing things the way we need to, not so much doing what, what we're doing because this is a standards dictate that we do this. Yeah. And so I, I think that that is completely um, one of his leadership qualities, I think, that I really admire. Well, one of the things I've always, and it's it's great to have that, especially since you've been at the uh, university coming up on nine years, and two years ago, you get a brand new chief executive, essentially. Um, that can be a very rocky and challenging time for any IT leader, and it sounds like things are going very well um, with you. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I will say executive transition is always challenging for people mm -hmm. across a number of different roles. There's new ways of thinking, new sure. paradigms to approach, but it's gone very well. And as a matter, matter of fact, I would call it synergistic. He simply added on to and has taken to a different space and a different level what we had started at a baseline on the campus. So it's been a very good relationship. Yeah. Well, and you've said, too, you're very well known on campus for being uh, the guy who shows up and explains things to people. You do you have a lot of, you know, you're very outgoing and extroverted. So you do a lot of these um, meetings and, and that sort of thing. But you'd also said that you find you don't have to explain as much about digital transformation. It's more like 
the desire is coming from the other side. Like, well, what are we doing about that digitally? So ha- has your sales job essentially changed as the CIO? Because uh, I think you were one of the uh, interviews I saw with you uh, with one of my colleagues at the uh, CIO Executive Council. You talked about the CIO as storyteller as much as technology leader. So how how have your story how have your storytelling days changed lately? So I would say that it's uh, rather than getting people to understand in the higher education space what digital transformation is or how it translates, it's more about what does it mean, right? So in my given space, if I'm talking about financial aid, what does it mean in this space? People are coming and saying, I get that I need digital now, but what does Mm -hmm. it mean? How do we go about doing this? And so it is a different discussion. Yes. The... um... Your strategic priorities, if you if you can remember back to say mid 2019 or even late 2019, and the list of things you had on, you know, your top three to five priorities that you were working on. When you think about that today, probably 18 months later or more, how has it changed? Has something moved way up the list and something got to fall much further down the list? How did your priorities shift around as as the CIO there? Mm. So um, I would say that the priorities were still on the board, but much to the terms you said, they kind of shifted. Things that we'd always said were important to CIOs were like, we're going to be network centric. That's always been there. It had to be working. But now people certainly understand more broadly what Mm -hmm. network centric means, that that's key. The second component I would say that people uh, that were about is being uh, hybrid enabled that there's going to be the on-prem best class experience, but there's also gonna be that in digital and there must be parity. It's not a choice between either or, it's how do we achieve and, and that is certainly ratcheted up. The last component is gonna be, we've always had data driven written down. It's always been at the tip of people's tongues, no matter where they came from, but now really being data informed at depth to get data driven, I think Mm -hmm. is crucial. So I would say those three have risen to the top on what's actually being discussed and what, rather than me being the person bringing it up, people bringing it up in spaces hey, and me right. being able to say, okay, well, here's here's some of the how or in what way do we want to address that? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we had talked about, and I, you've already mentioned now some of your digital first initiatives, that uh, ability to deliver the hardware to be mobile, to deal with the applications people needed, the digital forums. Talk about what happened with your digital forums. I think you had a pretty enormous increase in that interest and that volume. Yeah, so I, I will say we had a couple forums that occurred before uh, COVID, but we've mm-hmm. really ratcheted those up, particularly under the president's leadership of town hall setups that he's had under different templates. And we've had really good responses, so much so. And it's got, I would say it's waned in this period of time right now because everybody's becoming a little Zoom wary. That's the terminology we continue to hear. And that, that happens yeah. a lot. But uh, we've got really good responses through the town halls and continue to hear through the town halls that this is one of the critical elements that people want to make sure it does not disappear because they like the capability of having that engagement, although it's in the, what my colleagues call the square boxes, having that engagement, having it be live time, having dynamic two-way dialogues, even though it may be through chat or through something else and being able to perform other functions because in our composition at Dominguez Hills, we're more representative of where higher education is moving to, as opposed to the historical place has been from of, you know, older generation students, 
students that have families already built in or in different spaces in life. So it allows that other life to occur while they're engaging with the institution. That's, well, we have our first uh, alert question from our um, listeners who are with us here live. And the question, it fits right in with what we've been talking about. So kudos to the question asker. How has the accelerated digital transformation brought on by COVID exposed or exacerbated cyber vulnerabilities? This, uh, this, well, the cybersecurity question, and we almost always get one like this, but it's a really relevant question to ask. So take that away. So one of the uh, discussions that I'm frequently asked about is exactly this question, because the, underneath the terminology of it seems that the vectors and penetration points with security have increased astronomically. And mm -hmm. while the number of penetration points may not have gone up, certainly the frequency of testing from penetration from black hat and white hat actors yeah. certainly has gone through the roof because we're all now relying on these digital spaces. Mm -hmm. we, do, we do see what has been termed in the industry zero day kind of compromises yes. really have risen dramatically. And we hear about them more frequently. Even I think last night we saw something on some of the, one of the major VPNs. Uh, vendors has been compromised more recently from a foreign actor. And so these are coming at us more frequently and in yep. from different spaces. So information security continues to be something that continues to grow in very large part. And so we continue at the institution to continue to grow and kind of strengthen that space, both yep. from following best practice, but also being proactive. One of the parts that we've done over this last year with the institution is begin to kind of have the call out to the institution to say, look, it's not just the devices that I'm handing you that have the university asset tag. It's mm -hmm. everything you as a person are using and then also using that device. Please be sure to follow good protocols or healthy hygiene protocols for yeah. security in all the devices you have. Patch yeah. and update your regular systems you've got. Make sure you're at the latest levels because people oftentimes have multiple devices and don't think that what they're talking about applies to more than that one system I'm, I typically am talking about right. to make sure that it's a more comprehensive view. That's interesting. Yes, and I think extremely relevant to this. Uh, we've got a very interesting question next, and this one's almost a little more philosophical. Asking for your thoughts on experience management replacing the concept of digital transformation. And I know this is the uh, managing the student experience engagement is something that's very high on your radar. And maybe we're all wearing out on, you know, the big T word and everything being transformation. I, I think a lot of us feel like we've been transformed in this past year. So give us your thoughts on managing experiences as, as an IT leader. So uh, I'll give you an example from my institution. We developed an, an application in uh, with our partners at, at Apple. We work with their enterprise development group. Uh -huh. We have some good friends at Apple. We got together with the group and my deputy CIO, uh, Bill Chang, led this effort in developing an app called DHEs. It's basically around basic needs. So it's addressing a certainly a very large need that's in higher education today, particularly at Dominguez Hills. Mm -hmm. Our first foray at this was dealing with food insecurities. How do we address food insecurities? And the mm -hmm. large part of that was engaging both students as developers, faculty, staff, and other people within that particular project, but then bringing components of that group to Apple and go through what they call the golden, golden thread development. Now, I say all of that to say the whole design is around the idea of universal design, experience management is 
built part and parcel into that sort of experience, such that coming out of it, one of the things we discovered was people didn't want to be identified as having a need because social stigmas that may come along with that. So that was built into the application to remove that identifiable core, and so, but still make the services available to people. We developed the app, made it available, and it's continued to receive pretty good acclaim and pretty good traction on the campus, and it's mm -hmm. continuing to grow. Even during COVID, we've seen its, its potential use grow into other spaces as we begin to move into those spaces. Mm -hmm. So that's a long way to say that that experience management for some of us has always been part and parcel of digital transformation because it talks directly at where people are and bridging them through what I what we term on our campus systems of engagement. Because right. if we're just employing a system without the engagement part, it could be wildly successful at what it does, but never help you at the institution. And so the systems of engagement part is key to what we're doing. Well, and it reminds me too so much of a conversation I had a couple of years ago with um, the CIO of a very famous, well-known pizza chain. And they discovered when they had their pizza app up fully, and of course the pizza apps are excellent these days, that yes. people standing in line would order more toppings on their phone than they would if they went up to the counter and had to start saying, I want the sausage and the pepperoni and the hamburger and the chicken. You know, it was... It was like a social consciousness thing that people were more likely to treat themselves <laughs> if they were just on the app. You had mentioned too, when we talked uh, earlier, that there's a lot of AI involved in this. In your talk about your Ask Teddy, uh, the, yeah, I wanna hear more about that because I think that's one of the really interesting things you guys are up to. <laughs> sure, so our AI uh, that we've developed is called Ask Teddy. Teddy's our mascot at our campus. And mm -hmm. so we began that in, in targeted toward new incoming students, right? Incoming yeah. freshmen, incoming transfers. What are the top 100 questions they have? Built that around that, then pointed at kind of our website, learned through some website developments, and it continued to, you know, grow mm -hmm. an acquisition of knowledge, just like any other chatbot that's out there. As that continues to grow, one of the things that we discovered in this kind of uh, space that we live in with our composition of our students as students began asking questions in the languages that they have grown up with or that comes from their community. And they would ask Teddy, like, Teddy, uh, how much Teddy do I have in that financial aid, right? And Teddy would be like, I'm stopped. Well, most people on this call are going to be like, Fedia, what is Fedia? Well, that's a you know, way of expressing parlance to say, how much money is in my financial aid? And so mm -hmm. Teddy had to go through these sort of experiential learning periods yes. where we had to go through and this is part of one of building that lexicon inside Teddy for us. And this is part of what we're continuing to go through with such a diverse composition at our institution. It's one of the mm -hmm. value adds that we've got for, for what we're able to proposition to the AI. Now, mm -hmm. since we begin to expand Teddy into other broader areas, and we're also coming up with other elements like that, but that is one illustration of those of that, that space that our AI is providing that bridge for us in. Interesting. Now, is the AI something you work on internally with your, I mean, you've got a fairly lean crew that's taking care of 17,000 students in a pretty big campus. Um, do you do this in partnership with outside entities or do you have to hire your own data scientists and AI experts? So we do it externally with partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a partner vendor that we do work with. And, but I will tell you, my team says all the time that they are boxing well above their weight class. So <laughs> with, a, with, a, with 100 people, we certainly do uh, are addressing a number of different things on the campus well above yeah. the, the, the headcount we have. 
Yeah. Well, and speaking of the campus, if for anybody who's watching us on screen right now, there's you have a lovely virtual background that shows one of your new buildings that very few people have seen yet on the inside. Yes. That's your science building, right? That is correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. Tell tell us just a little bit about that. And is that like wall to wall, very advanced technologies being a science building? So it's uh, composed largely of large structures of labs built within it. Uh, mm -hmm. some, late, some of the latest lab buildouts also has some area for provisions for some of the major community-based project work that we do, which is immensely exciting, where we take mobile labs out to, to uh, high schools and elementary schools, literally towed behind Toyota trucks. We've got mobile science labs that we open up and expose kids to science in those given areas to get them excited about it and create that bridge to the institutions with something we've won national awards for and number of grants. And that, yeah. that, that, that space, it's not showing it there, but it does have a space that you can actually back up into. And it does have that incubation sort of space for that. There is technology built within the space, as you might imagine. My team has been really busy in the space to build that out, AV technologies, yes. lab technologies. So we're very excited about that space with the coming term, populating back up to our 50 percentile mark and above. Great. And that um, that science building, that's one of the six or eight major lines, major colleges that you have at CSUDH. That is correct. Yes. Okay. The, we have another question, and this one is about your thoughts. And I'm, I'm a little bummed out. The questions from the audience are generally, they're better than mine. So, but I guess that's what we want, right? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on exponential data growth and how you're managing it? Because, yeah, because now we're, we're virtual, we're on-premise, uh, everything is, uh, is growing data. And so tell us about your data strategy. So currently our data strategy is very kind of vendor-driven. And I will say that is something that we're working on. And I, from the questions I've been asking colleagues I talk to, I'm mm -hmm. not alone in that space. Yeah. So we're trying to we're we're trying to identify as we move forward. One of the big questions and responses that I have to pose this is the direction that we're going to take to do we continue to look at off the shelf mm -hmm. and utilize those for that level of scalability, or do we begin to roll in-house with some self-development around space and then begin looking at storage strategies around that space? Most of our current uh, applications are sitting with external vendors. So some of the scalability, we haven't really been taxed enormously by, but the mm -hmm. moment we start getting into more research, researchy questions, which are longitudinal, that's really gonna drive that question. So thus far, we've been okay with the strategy set up that's very kind of vendor partner driven, but we right. are looking at longer term where we will bring in a lot of that stuff into our kind of our self build as we get more customizable. Okay, well, that makes sense. We've got another good question. This one is about how the pandemic has impacted your BizCon, your business continuity and your disaster recovery plans. Were you well prepared? I mean, as we said, nobody could predict a global pandemic, but what kind of impact has that has it had? Well, I will tell you it transformed business continuity because we were, as I said before, we were ready for an earthquake. And we were ready for, yes. you know, we, we live near oil wells. If there was an explosion in an oil well or something happened in the local environment for a pandemic that had such far reaching geographic consequence, that was something that really we weren't really set for and set up to be able to address. So it really tilted, its on, tilted it on its head. And for us to ask brand new questions in brand new ways. 
The other thing that exposed quite, quite honestly is the degree to which IT is a critical path partner across mm-hmm. the institution. And quite literally, if it wasn't before COVID, that we certainly are now enabled in being enabled to enabling the ability for services to be provided during periods like a pandemic or now other ways as we begin to transform businesses moving that digital way. So those are two fundamental ways we've seen the shift. So it's grown quite dramatically. Okay. Well, Ned, I was a little startled when you said IT in a critical path partner, and this reflects my bias. I would have thought that it would have been there all along, but this is a, an eye-opening experience for administrators, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I would say it isn't so much that we weren't a partner before. It's the number of ways that we are, I would say. Yeah. As you go down lines of business, the number of lines of business that have, are becoming more reliant on being able to have the technology running, not just the network running, but literally mm-hmm. your processes, your forms, your the, even the ways that actions are taken within the, the given departments, um, yeah. how all of that is resting uh, with one another. Wow. Well, one of the things that you and I talked about um, uh, beforehand when we were getting ready for this conversation was about student engagement. And it was not just student now, but after they graduate and go on. Um, you know, How do you keep them engaged with a university like CSUDH as education itself is changing? Um, have you seen any progress on that or what are how are your the way you think about the alumni you know and not just hitting them up for donations all universities know how to do that but about the way that you keep them coming back to campus maybe even virtually how how is that changing so we have a a a a, uh, motto on our campus that says once a toro always a toro and that's been with us for decades Sure. And so now we're taking that and putting it into kind of what's the digital implication of that? And what does that mean for services we provide at the campus? Mm-hmm. And some of these services existed for a prolonged period of time, but the linkages between them may not as have been as tight. And this is one of these things that COVID has revealed character for the campus in. And mm-hmm. so driven by the fact, and this is well-researched by my ADP for institutional effectiveness, um, that students who graduate during, during recession periods Versus students who graduate during boom periods, those students never catch up for, to each other equitably in salary throughout their career. So that's something that economists have documented. So in these periods of time where we see like COVID, where there has been differential impact, mm-hmm. what, what could we do and what are ways we could examine the institution to kind of mitigate and balance that mitigation for students that may be going through the graduation cycle? And what does it mean for how we link our services inside the campus? So we have something we call the DNA of authentic engagement or our resilience kind of paradigm that we utilize. And mm-hmm. this is going across intersegmentality, K through 12, community colleges and higher ed, trying to draw each other closer. And I just got done talking to the LA Chamber of Commerce uh, mm-hmm. education group a couple of weeks ago about now is the time for partnership looking at this because in order to address a deeply digital economy that is only growing more so, it requires these linkages for us to get together more tightly on. And that people might expect. What they don't or may not be more readily expectant of is being able to say now inside the institution, how can we begin to examine the skill sets 
that firms on the outside, which will be the employers for the students that are here, what are those key critical skill sets that are needed on the outside? How can we bridge those with pedagogies that are in the classroom, faculty driven, of course, mm -hmm. that we are building, you know, future members of the society with as our first driver, but also providing them skill sets where they can have good jobs and be able to relate to things on the outside world once they get there. How do we bridge those two things together? So we brought together a group and we basically created a skills type program and mm -hmm. together with faculty and one of our drivers in our group and said, let's examine skills using quantitative and qualitative measures, put together skills boot camps, got those together, and it's really taken off like gangbusters during the COVID period. So this is one of these things of drawing attention to an area that's sorely needed and drawing relevance to the institution out of areas that may have not been actively addressed formerly. Now, moving forward from that, on the educate, extended education side, our dean on that side has been deeply pursuing badging uh, on the outside toward these skill sets and what it could mean toward credentialing in those other areas, such that it continues after graduation and linkages with the institution can continue to get drawn. So that full cycle methodology is something that we're pursuing now actively at the campus. That is interesting. When you say badging, do you mean certifications? I'm suddenly imagining someone using their badge to get into a building. That's not what so, you mean. <laughs> no, so the digital badging, although it is taken from that, I think largely one of the areas was like the Boys and Girl Scouts where they had badge on their yeah. sashes. Yep, so people I remember can earn, those. <laughs> earn, yes, earn badges around skill sets that they develop either through programmatic or certifications, and they earn a digital badge. And then mm -hmm. those badges can be, you know, taken along with them across their signature line or other places that are holding spaces that are institutionally accredited and say, you do have a badge for this given set of skills. Mm -hmm. And then they can share those out with areas, both for employment, other paraprofessional activities, or yep. wherever it might be to demonstrate some level of expertise in that given field. Okay, excellent. Now, one of the things you mentioned uh, was uh, partnerships, and we also touched on some of the vendor relationships you have and how you use them, for instance, in developing Ask Teddy and the AI. How have your COVID era, it's hard to know what to call this time, is it our pandemic era or is it the COVID era? How have your relationships with your vendors or the difference between your vendors and your partners, what has bubbled to the surface on that? Things that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before that has either surprised you or pleased you or made you realize that you needed to make a change. Talk a little bit about those insourcing, outsourcing kind of shifts going on. Mm -hmm. I think the, the insourcing and outsourcing lines are beginning to blur. Oh, and yeah. I think in, mm -hmm. in some ways, the, the way that we used to have at the institution, there were those groups that were outside the wire or inside mm -hmm. the wire. And, you know, if you were inside the wire, you were, you went through all the, you know, vetting process and you got certified and went through that. I think more and more things that we're beginning to use rather than being fundamental. And I'll just use one example if you're a a Cisco partner and they're providing all of your stuff or a Microsoft partner and they're providing your stuff to, to the degree that they had access to certain things that you were doing business on, that was fundamentally part of what you were as an institution. I think now we're beginning to find slices of different areas that are beginning to become the experts in those given domains that are going to require that sort of relationship with the institution mm -hmm. across broader expanses, particularly if we're looking at staying with 
off-the-shelf relationships with vendors where we're not doing the internal development ourselves right. to the degree that that engagement is there. And as we bring those partners inside, those discussions which have always been there around information security, right? Mm -hmm. What is the privacy and how does data treated also are beginning to bridge themselves in the way that how do we discuss that if we're going to develop ourselves as an app factory or a service provider to this given functional unit, what does that look like? And then the last question, which I think is critical that we are finding out at our institution is really we are moving from, we still use project management will, it's increasingly important, but we're really, we're really moving into life cycle management. So what does it look like and what does it mean to have this item at what point in time, because all things will deprecate at that point in time, yes. what do we think that would mean for that given space, what does interoperability look like given that sort of discussion and mm -hmm. when we think that turns out, those are becoming enormously larger drivers for us to think more future proofing build, as well as more holistically across the line. And those greatly informed discussions at cabinet and other levels about, okay, we want to be or do X, Y, and Z thing in order to do that, that portends a different architecture or necessarily a design to support the direction that you may want to go. Yes. Well, and it also changes, doesn't it, the way IT or various IT team members think about the work that they're doing. When you say life cycle management, you really mean product and service life cycle management, not a project that has a start date and an end date and here's our metrics and, and we did a great job on it and moving on now. I mean, there's just, there seems to be much deeper involvement. Yeah. Now I have a colleague that says all the time, so what exactly does live mean, right? So the project's yeah. done, it's live and I handed the keys over, okay? Well, that was during the, you, you ran it for three months and now it's live, but you didn't have it for the first year or two years and you didn't see the first permutation of wave one. So it, these, these things are becoming increasingly important discussions to have over life cycle dimensions. Yes. Well, and one of the things I, I know this is a, a very important topic with you too. You, we talked about how COVID opened up all these other opportunities and these new ways of thinking, but to go back full circle to digital divide. I know that is something. Uh, talk about how you're thinking around digital divide, how that is advancing, what kind of things you're hearing from your other colleagues in higher ed about approaches to it. So as I mentioned, we, we're talking in the region around what does this mean for this opportunity mm -hmm. that COVID presented us. And I'll give you one basic example that's been beginning to have discussions. Many higher institutions went and said, we're going to provide devices and we're going to provide MIFIs. But then mm -hmm. what happens is you provide the devices and as the student moves through, say, K through 12, at the end of that experience, wherever they may be, my students, my, my children just did this yesterday, they check those devices back in. And then they're back to level state zero, wherever you were, depending on what your household has. And mm -hmm. then you move on to the next one where you have to go through a whole separate checkout process, move through that whole thing, whole separate setup process. And so are there ways of mitigating this more uniformly? If we know that we're in a society that has continued learning as part of it, if we're growing to a space where we're gonna move through uh, even post, say, your first degree, second degree, or third degree, where you're mm -hmm. going to have continuous learning, continue to inform the five or six different sectors that you'll have a job in, not just job change, but literally yeah. sectors you'll move across, and mm -hmm. which is going to require some of these certs. And if you're going through education, K through 12, higher education, or even different paraprofessional 
paraprofessional certifications. Mm -hmm. Is there a better way to enable the person equitably to have that? And then if we go deeper, once the door is open, you provide them the device, they get that the last mile access. Once they have that, what is their portability for them, let's say in badges, or what mm -hmm. is out there for them to have in portfolios that they may necessarily care with them as they continue to develop. It's not so much tied necessarily strictly to the institution. As we move those directions, those are the things I think now more and more people are starting to look at and say, what does this mean? Because it's not, it's not a zero sum game. And well, I have this cohort group, I move them through and that's just the world I live in. Much more of this is regional, even global, the space that all of this is activated in. Right. Well, and the um, pivoting from that actually back to what we were saying about AI and um, that we have a question about what the right environment is for applying AI applications throughout your team. Do the AI apps accurately reflect the business or does it still need work? <laughs> so um, AI is a job that's never done. So I'll answer it that way. So yeah. I, the, mm -hmm. I, I say this all the time that our, our AI was live and up to date the moment I turned it on. And one of yeah. the premises behind it is it's a learning environment. Mm -hmm. So it will constantly be evolving. I think some yeah. of the challenges of what AI we have, and any vendor will tell you this that you go talk to, is that the, the upkeep for the information that's there, while the inquiry may continue to happen from the outside, the mm -hmm. answers to the inquiry that that AI can then resource to provide back to the inquiry, though hmm. making sure those pieces are adequately resourced to be updated is one of the challenges that we're currently facing. So how do we ensure that if we're given areas of expertise where there are experts that are the live human beings, how do we get that information translated into the AI on an ongoing frequent basis? And mm -hmm. we're beginning to understand this to be a certain kind of stratified job. This is going to be something in perpetuity that people in these sphere areas are going to have to do and perpetually be, have to maintain. It's not necessarily a core IT job to do. This mm -hmm. is something that functions areas that are the experts in the area are going to have to be feeding in and then we can assess. So I okay. think in that way, that's the way that that's, uh, that learning environment continues to grow. Interesting. The um, When we think about learning environments and the kind of emerging technology trends that you watch as the CIO, uh, CIO there at, at CSU DH, um, how, what are the things that you're paying closer attention to now? Um, and I know we've talked about several dozen of them probably in this last 45, 50 minutes, but I wondered whether there was something that we haven't brought up yet that you're paying special attention to. So I think the, the one that got brought up around experience or what I've, I've termed universal design, I think that's huge. Formerly, it was a marketing term, and I'll just say that without any negative connotation to it, right. but if people right. perceived it as it was, that's what people in marketing spaces mm -hmm. are concerned about. I think yeah. that is something that we're all now going to be really concerned about. And it portends for us across a number of different areas in technology, not just the designers or the developers, but manners mm -hmm. in which we act, we activate different parts of the technology stack. Excellent. 
The um, let's also pivot over and think about talent acquisition uh, in our in our last couple of minutes here. Um, your campus is, is as, as I mentioned, one of the most diverse and, and diversified in the nation. 60% Latinx, uh, 14% Asian, 11% Black. You've got a really great mix of lots of different backgrounds. How, what is your own approach? A lot of times technology organizations themselves do not reflect much diversity. And I know that's something that a lot of IT leaders work on constantly mm-hmm. and, and even more so now. It's, it's almost in a lot of ways, it's part of the digital divide in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your talent acquisition strategies and how much your current staff is reflective of the incredibly diverse campus that you're managing. Yes, we're actually very reflective of our composition for the campus. So much so, I don't think we're one for one representative, but we are mm-hmm. very close to the representative uh, numbers that we've got. And I wanna make sure as we're talking about this, the diversity measure isn't just something that we're looking at from an ethnic perspective. Right. It's also something that we're looking at from experience perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, both of those things actually matter dramatically inside IT. So mm-hmm. we are very ethnically diverse within IT as a group. And it really helps out in the discussions that we have for understanding backgrounds to when I say this, what does it mean for communication? Mm -hmm. But even more importantly, when we're going to develop X solution from where you're coming from and your stack of experience, what does or does it does it not hit? I'm a great fan of the book of a team of rivals, which my, my team is kind of a little wary of because of what the book actually talks about, but uh, a team of rivals because, you know, Lincoln during the Civil Wars has this team that he puts together of people that really were kind of at opposition with one another, yes. but he provided the glue for those things to work. I think in the same way that diversity uh, measure has the opportunity to provide that to ensure that we're coming from different elements of different di- different fragments in, of the mm-hmm. glass to be ensured to ensure that we're putting those elements together in order to reach that ultimate conclusion of the solution we're trying to develop. So as it relates to recruiting or going out and search, seeking individuals, one of the things that we've been able to rely on, and we do the things that everybody else does, right? You know, we've yep. got uh, search firms. We have our own, as a state agency, there's certain guidelines we have to follow. The private firms may not have to follow. Uh, certain places we have to advertise in conjunction with the other places we go to. We have a very strong HR group that works really well with us because IT is very dynamic in its kind of composition and tour classifications and what we're looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really helps us is because we're diverse, sourcing those individuals for, hey, this is a great place to work. And I know it is because I'm working here. We then are able to source those given locations from that, those people's given experiences or places they come from. And so that has been enormously helpful for us being able to get those leads into other areas or other places to say, okay, we're bringing people in. Mm -hmm. And it has the added function of also adding additional diversity to the to the equation that we already have set in place. Yes. So there's kind of a force multiplier in place there. Well, exactly. And it's it's sort of like it's a constant, it's a feeding cycle that happens. Correct. And I, yes. I I myself a lot of times I end up 
in conversations with people about like percentages of women in IT or particular, uh, you know, like ethnic backgrounds. I think I agree with you. I think it's the diversity of thought that everybody yes. is bringing in background. And of course, I say this talking to a CIO who actually has a master's in geography. I, I run into a lot of, since we're talking about talent and that sort of thing, I thought that might be interesting. How did you end up from being an expert? You went CSU Fullerton, you have an undergrad in geography and then a master's in it. How did you end up in technology? So uh, many people often don't remember that uh, geography was the place that geographic information systems rose out of. So I was a big GIS person from way back okay. then, deep into data, as well as GPS systems and work with private firms, EGT out of Europe and Navtech and others, doing a whole bunch of GIS type work on intelligent vehicle roadway systems. And so kind of wow. had that a little bit as a background, but it is very interesting because the geography part of growing up with geography as a discipline has been enormously helpful because in geography, you're constantly surveying what is the entire ecosystem, right? You may be only trying to resolve this particular problem, but what is the entire ecosystem? And then drill back down into this particular issue you're looking at and then its implications across the line. And that is enormously helpful, particularly today where technology is going because it is both across the enterprise as well as looking forward, ensuring the sustainability and future-proofing of the enterprise as we move forward in as much as you can be. So it's it's really helpful in that regard. It's it's a lot more related than you would think, right? Well, I, I can remember writing stories about GIS systems back when I was a reporter at Computer World. So oh, yes. definitely something I paid attention to from the, the mid-90s. I came into technology reporting out of daily newspapers. And to be honest with you, the first time I really understood the technologies I was writing about and interviewing people about were when they were associated with like mapping programs. It was something you could visualize, especially if you'd been a journalism major, you know, and, and when people would talk about chips and operating systems, they were a little esoteric, but a mapping system of roads, that was actually something you could kind of get your arms around. Um, I've got, as we start wrapping up here, I always ask a leadership lessons learned kind of question, but I think that I maybe got a better question from one of our alert uh, listeners out there, wanted to know during the pandemic, what was the most difficult decision you had to make as an IT leader and why was it so difficult? The, um, the most difficult decision that I had to make was at what point in time do I have to go to my manager in the, in the device section? Because we hadn't figured out yet home shipping devices directly for vendors and a whole bunch of things. Asking him to start figuring out with you know precautions in place, mm-hmm. bringing back team members on the campus and having a higher potential degree of exposure Yes. with those given teams in a given physical space. I would say that was one of the most difficult things that I had to do as a leader, because as a leader, I always believe that if for no other reason, you always insert yourself first into the most difficult, and then you bring other people along with you, even okay. if you're only there for a period of time, because oftentimes I can't be everywhere as the vice president, but at least you're, you've got the experience, you're there, and then you're together as a team with it. So that from that perspective was the most difficult uh, decision that I had to make or conversation I had to have. But Mm -hmm. the team performed amazingly well and um, everything has gone quite well with the group. So very, very fortunate to have that happen. Yes. Well, it sounds like, but it sounds like they're lucky to have you as their boss, but clearly the, 
the feeling is mutual. So that's really nice. Were there any particular leadership lessons and any aha moments for you beyond that as you have managed through this past year? Um, there is just, there's so much that's happened, well, with all of us in all of our lives, but was there anything that struck you as a really great leadership aha moment over the past year? So we have a, a phrase we use on the campus that I came up with one of the last times I could be on an airplane before COVID that says, what got us here will not get us there. And we, the president frequently uses it and we use it a lot in cabinet mm -hmm. and other leadership places because a lot of the things, and it's no fault of any one particular person, but, or any services or anything like that, is just for where we are today, the, the questions that we ask have to have a different lexicon that you're pulling from for moving into tomorrow. And so that for me has been really one of the leadership lessons. And there's two for me. That would, that's the first one. The second one is listening to the, all the voices, no matter how small, where they may be coming from, because mm -hmm. we've had people bring up things from personal experience. Like I have an X thing going on in my house and you think, wow, that's like, that might be N of one. But then what you really discover is that N of one in your representative group really is an N of 10,000 that translates into a significantly larger group. And we've had that occur. And that's why equity, you hear me talk a lot about equity. Mm -hmm. Those issues turn out to be the ones that are like, look, it's not just this person that has her grandmother, three kids, co uh, partner working from home, and yeah. two of them get sick, and now they have to be sequestered from it. And those become realities. And we had some of that happen very early on. And I thought, my God, that's who's going to have to deal with that? Little did we know that it was going to be a majority of us were going to have some level of that experience. Yes. So those would be the two that I would say. Well, those are pretty, those are pretty darn good. So thank you. Um, and the last question I have, and this again is from our audience, and it's a big question. Uh, it's about the major challenges you foresee in the next five years and what your strategy is to address them. I would scope that down just a little bit and say, what is one big challenge you're anticipating over the next few years and your strategy to deal with it? Okay. So, um, for the, it, and it's an almost immediate one. What mm -hmm. is the balance on the other side of COVID, not for new normal, but for mm -hmm. the way that we continue to adopt the framework of readiness for constant change? Uh, that, that is going to fundamentally inform Mm -hmm. the rest of things that are coming at us. Because I could talk to technology things, and since the CIO forum, I'll say, for instance, the question got brought up earlier about our data strategy, that's one we have, we actively have. Particularly yeah. as we begin to stick our feet into research forays larger and larger, that's mm -hmm. gonna be a much more significant discussion that gets played out over the next year. So yeah. that's a huge one. But I think really setting the mindset around readiness for change, being the change is mm -hmm. more or less gonna be somewhat constant for us, for the next mm -hmm. two to three years, that I think is going to be the most critical thing that we, we've got that we, we should be focusing towards. Well, and, and we could even take that up several more levels and say that for humanity, that's probably a lot of the challenges <laughs> that we have. That was an excellent answer. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been truly delightful having this conversation right. today. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. Excellent. Very good being here. Very good being here. Thank you. 
Yes. Well, if you joined us late today and you're just catching the tail end of this fascinating conversation, do not despair. Uh, you can find my full interview with Chris Manriquez, who is the CIO of California State University, DH Dominguez Hills. You can find that on CIO.com and on YouTube's IDG Tech Talk channel. CIO Leadership Live is also available as an audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Chris Menriquez today as much as I did, and that you'll join us for our next episode of CIO Leadership Live, which will be two weeks from today on Wednesday, May 5th, a little earlier in the day. We're going to start at 11 a.m. Eastern, when I'll be joined by CIO Devin Valencia of CareSource, which is an Ohio-based health insurance provider. Thanks again for joining us today, and please do take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is called IDG Tech Talk, where you can find all of the previous episodes of CIO Leadership Live. Uh, speaking personally, I find them enormously bingeable because I could listen to CIOs all day and talk to them all day, and it has been a very delightful having you all with us here today. Thanks so much. Stay well out there, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.